Let's pray. Father, we um, come to you this day. And as we open um, this story of Ruth, I just pray that we'll see real connection points with our lives today and how through Jesus we can have hope, a sure faith, and a knowing of your all-embracing love for us. Amen. I really enjoyed last week um, hearing Laura open up the book of Ruth. And I was, I was listening on different levels, hearing what she was going to say. She asked me to check for heresy. I found none, so that was great. I, didn't, I haven't given her the same mandate today. Um, but I was quite interested how she took this metaphor of surprise. And she said right at the very beginning, she spoke about, she read this, this little book and it's full of surprises and how we can be impacted by surprises. Then she linked it with the sort of hardcore metal concert thing she went to. So I thought, oh, I'm a smart young girl. She's been to theological college, got all the latest smarts on preaching and that. So I thought, well, what do I do? So I thought I need to think of a metaphor to kick off, get the audience across the line. And so <laughs> the way I'm approaching this is in reading the book of Ruth, quite seriously, I've been stunned in that I no longer read the book of Job and feel that is the low point of the Bible, that he had the rawest deal. As I've read Ruth and got my head around it, I'm stunned at the suffering and the agony and the emptiness for this woman in a culture where success is defined or brokered through men. So I was left stunned. Then I thought, well, how do I broker this with a music metaphor? I thought, do I have to go to Taylor Swift? No. <laughs> but a month ago, I had a wonderful, stunning musical experience. As you will see on the screen, come on, guys, we practice this. <laughs> now, there's Phil Carr on his first day of teaching. <laughs> Phil, this is what teaching does to you. A bit louder, Bruce. So I went and saw the wall, you know the song, Another Brick in the Wall. And I was stunned by this musical experience, this theatre, and where it's a story about brokenness, trying to break free and becoming a fully actualised person. We better turn it off, guys. We could play it for the whole sermon. But, um, but it was a story of a man rebelling against culture, boxed in by culture, wanting to break free, getting outside the wall and being victorious. It was a stunning experience. I'm sure Taylor Swift in 30 years' time won't be coming back and doing the same concert she did last night. Such is life. Neither will be Roger Waters. He'll be in a box. He'll be ashes. So we come to the story of Ruth and we pick up from where Laura um, left us last week and we just do a quick recap. And on the screen... Um, we will see just a quick, we see two pictures of Ruth and Naomi. And we see over here Naomi, whose name means sweet, famine in Israel, God's judgment was on Israel, Elimelech and his family, they moved to Moab, neighbouring country, they were there for 10 years. They were alone in Moab, in, in Moab, because she, Naomi lost her husband, lost, son -in -law, lost her sons, she had no grandchildren, she's in a foreign land. Pretty sad story. So she's a widow, she's got no status, she's got no voice, no legal rights, she's vulnerable, powerless, insecure. And 
This word widow actually means unable to speak. She heads back home, doesn't want her daughter-in-laws to join her, changes her name to Mara, meaning bitter with God. Then we come over to Ruth. She's a Moabite, she's a widow, no children, she's alone. She's still of childbearing age. Moab offered her much better security. She was locked into their welfare system. She could start again. She could find, easily find a Moab man. She was accepted in their society. She would be included. She would be not different. She comes to the, says, I'm going to go to the land of Israel, and she knows she's going as an outsider. The Moabites were hated by the Israelites. If a Moabite wanted to come into the Jewish community and embrace their God, the Jewish rules were that it would be, take them 10 years before they could actually meet with the assembly of the people before God. That's how much they were despised. But we know Ruth takes the step of faith. She commits herself to Naomi's God and consequently to Naomi's well-being. So a wonderful um, sort of story here that Laura opened up to us last week. And when I think of that story and that scene, what we've got in front of us here, there's a twist in that, in that whole slide of all that information because God breaks through here in a human embrace. They're on the road and Naomi says to Ruth and Oprah, don't come with me. Ruth decides to come, embraces Naomi and something changes. But I don't think Naomi realizes that at that point because she goes home, she meets her old family and friends and says, look, don't call me sweet anymore, call me bitter because God's actually stuffed things up for me. That's sort of where we were left last week. It's black, it's despondent. And you think, well, Carl, how do we link in with the story? How do we pull this through into chapter two today where the Ruth goes gleaning in the fields and getting food. I want to just spend a few moments in the first verse of the whole book in chapter 1, where it reads like this, In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. So a man from Bethlehem in Judea, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. Here we have, in this verse, we have three things going on. We've got a context... We've got a crisis and we've got a solution. And so when we actually take that verse, take the content out of it that's specific to Ruth's context and translate that structure through into our world, I think we may be all able to try and get some connection. Because we can almost think of contexts in life where, where there has been a crisis, where there has been pain, sadness, brokenness, either in your own life or in your family's life or in the world around you. And so, for example, it could be in the days when Helen Clark... Oh, no, that's a bit political, isn't it? Um, in the days when the breakers ruled, okay? Context. There was a global financial crisis, or there was a sovereign debt crisis in Europe, or there was a health scare in our family, or my dad lost his job, or my boyfriend dumped me from by a text message, or I slandered on Facebook. Think about contexts where you have experienced ache, brokenness, injustice. And we start to get a connection with this family. And so, solution. 
In the context of Emelik's family, they went to Moab. Interesting, a despised nation, a group of people the Jews wanted to have nothing to do with. But there was famine, they were empty, and the thing they despised, they actually went to to resolve their emptiness. They were so empty they would do anything to restore their well-being. And often when we get in crises, it forces us to make decisions because we just want to get things back on track again. We want the emptiness to be filled. We want to take it back to where life once was because we don't want this experience to continue. And such was the crisis facing this family. As we saw in the previous slide, we know what all happened in that journey. I want to propose this morning that we're all empty. We're all looking for something to clothe and sustain us. And in Western culture, in the world we live in, we've got the most tools at our disposal to actually cover up that emptiness, to protect against crises. We've got insurance for this, insurance for that. If we're organizing an event, we can actually take out an insurance policy if it rains so we still make the same money. And we can keep going forward. Our culture is so sophisticated, we can burn off most things. And the great one we're trying to crack is cancer. We sort of feel as though when we read that news headline, cancer drug, it solves all cancer. We would have cracked the code, immortality. And there's lots of things in our own lives, in our own worlds, which we face, which we would just like to crack the code. What's really interesting at the moment, I was um, listening on the TV recently, and in Europe at the moment, there was an article about print media. All print media is going down in circulation, except for one magazine. That's The Economist. All documentary and news programs on TV are falling away in ratings at the present in Europe, except any program that has to do with economics. And I wonder why. In our Western culture, our story is driven by capitalism, by that machine being able to continue to create money, make people wealthy, because through wealth I gain independence, through wealth I have control, through wealth I have security. And at the moment, we're seeing across the Western world, and it's mainly focused on Europe at the moment, we feel it right down here in New Zealand, is the economic capitalist machine is coughing and spluttering. And we want to find the cure. So our assets and our wages can all start to spiral up again. We can get back to how it was. It wasn't that great, but it looks much better than it did now. And so when I think about the context of Ruth, of Naomi and her family. We can see how Naomi just feels that God is no longer blessing her. That he's turned his hand against me. He actually says to her daughter-in-law in verse 9 in chapter 1 how God has turned, the Lord has turned his hand against me. Even though in that barrenness and silence she could still speak of God acting. And so I like this quote that's on the screen at the moment, which says, Instead of finding comfort in God, Naomi, like her counterpart Job, found that thinking about God only made things worse. She comes home. She went away empty. She comes back empty. She has got no social capital around her, no men who can broker her back into society. 
She needs sons to actually get the family machine going again to create a welfare and secure system for her in old age to keep the family name alive and to give her economic security. It's a black hole that she's in. And Philip Yancey, he speaks of Western culture and Christians in that same context. And this quote upon the screen I read to you. As adults, we like to pay our own way, live in our own houses, make our own decisions, rely on no outside help. We look down on those who live off welfare or charity. Faced with an unexpected challenge, we seek out self-help books. All the while, we are systematically sealing off the heart attitude most desirable to God and most descriptive of our true state in the universe. Apart from me, you can do nothing, Jesus told his disciples. A plain fact we conspire to deny. Isn't that interesting? We conspire to deny. We really want to be in control. And we speak of God in the context of success. You know, you hear the catchphrase, well, that was a God moment. You know, we use sort of around culture at the moment. Well, we don't sort of hear it in the pain and suffering. Well, that's a God moment. We sort of present this God as triumphant. And I wonder often as parents, we've got so many young families here, what sort of God are you passing on to your children? What stories are you causing them to dwell in and to come to grips with? But sometimes we want to protect our children from the brokenness and the emptiness and the barrenness of life. We want them to feel that everything's going to work out all right. Because that's really what we want for them. And you know what? God wants the same for us. He wants everything to work out right too. And he's actively setting up the process and he set it up so it will ultimately work out right. But in the meantime, we live in this broken world. And I wonder that's why so many people spit the dummy on Christianity, particularly youth and young adults. Stay in the Christian home once they start to get out in the workforce, to university, etc. The whole thing doesn't stack up. Been in a Christian family, been to a Christian school, learnt 400 memory verses over 10 years at a Christian school or what have you. So what? Disconnected bits of sentences that make no connection to a story. Because in essence, we frame our lives by a story. And when our young people hit culture, they find a really attractive story for the moment. Because our culture is a momentary culture of today. But one day, the goodness of today will be the barrenness of tomorrow. And we get to those holes, and what have we given them? This verse in the Bible says that. But it's not connected to a story. A verse in the Bible only makes sense in the context of the whole story. And so that's the importance of us understanding the whole macro story of God, because this is what happens to Naomi. She gets in a black hole because she's lost perspective of the big picture. And she actually thinks God is defined by her circumstances, by what's happening here. That defines everything about God. And so she is bitter with God. So now we come to chapter 2. And I just want to read that to you. It's quite a long chapter. It's on the screen. And it's really good just at times just to read a chunk of Scripture. It would be very easy for me today just to be really efficient. Uh, no, postmoderns aren't efficient. Modernists are efficient. Um, and just give you the key points, the principles. But let's just read this. That's quite a nice part in the story. We need a bit of light at the moment. Chapter 2. Now Naomi had a relative on her husband's side, a man of standing, 
clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. Here we're linking, the writer's linking us back to the beginning of the story with Elimelech, whose actual name and clan means fruitful. So we're bringing this fruitful picture back into the story. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, let me go to the fields and pick up the leftover grain behind anyone in whose eyes I find favor. It's interesting here, back in Israel, you see Ruth as the one taking the initiative. Naomi is depressed, she's broken. She mostly realizes I've brought some real baggage back home here. She's culturally rejected. How am I going to actually survive? But here's Ruth getting off her backside, seeking to take some action. So Naomi said to her, go ahead, my daughter. That's all she said. Didn't say God bless you or anything like that. She couldn't. It was so dark. So she went out and entered a field and began to glean behind the harvesters. This next phrase is a turning book part in the story. As it turned out, she found herself working in a field belonging to Boaz, who was from the clan of Elimelech. As it turned out, isn't that an interesting phrase? This is a pivotal phrase in the whole story. Just then, Boaz arrived from Bethlehem and greeted the harvesters. The Lord be with you. The Lord bless you, he answered. Good power, submissive relationship here. Boaz asked the overseer of his harvest, who does that young woman belong to? Overseer replied, she is the Moabite who came back from Moab with Naomi. She said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves behind the harvesters. She came into the field and has remained here from morning till now, except for a short rest in the shelter. She's a wolfie. <laughs> so Boaz said to Ruth, my daughter, listen to me. Don't go and glean in another field. Don't go away from here. Stay with the woman who work for me. Watch the field where the harvesters are working and follow along after the woman. I have told the men not to lay a hand on you. And wherever you are thirsty, go and get a drink from the water jars the men have filled. At this, she bowed down with face to the ground. Always look forward to the day when a woman would do that to me. <laughs> she asked him, why have I found so much favor in your eyes that you notice me? A foreigner. Boaz replied, I've been told all about what you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband. How you left your father and mother and your homeland and came to live with a people you did not know before. May the Lord repay you for what you have done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. May I continue to find favor in your eyes, my Lord, she said. You have reassured me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I do not have the standing of one of your servants. At mealtime, Boaz said to her, come over here. Have some bread and dip it in the wine vinegar. She's been upgraded continually in the story. It's like going to the airport, cattle class, to business class, to first class. She's now at the man's table. This is day one at work. And there's not even any unions. When she sat down with the harvesters, he offered her some roasted grain. She ate all she wanted and had some left over. As she got up to glean, Boaz gave orders to his men. Let her gather among the sheaves and don't reprimand her. Even pull out some stalks for her from the bundles and leave them for her to pick up and don't rebuke her. So Ruth gleaned in the field until evening. Then she threshed the barley she had gathered 
and it amounted to about an epah. She carried it back to town, and her mother-in-law saw how much she had gathered. Ruth also brought out and gave her what she had left over after she had eaten enough. Her mother-in-law asked her, Where did you glean today? Where did you work? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. Then Ruth told her mother-in-law about the one at whose place she had been working. The name of the man I worked with today is Boaz, she says. The Lord bless him, Naomi said to her daughter-in-law. He has not stopped showing his kindness to the living and the dead, she added. That man is our close relative. He is one of our family guardians. Then Ruth the Moabite said, He even said to me, Stay with my workers until they finished harvesting all my grain. Naomi said to, her, said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, It will be good for you, my daughter, to go with the woman who worked for him, because on someone else's field you might be harmed. So Ruth stayed close to the woman of Boaz to glean until the barley and wheat harvests were finished. And she lived with her mother-in-law. I don't know why that line had to go in there. Perhaps it says something about her character. We could preach on that next time. So here we have a really contrasting picture. You sort of feel a bit of the darkness lifting over this context. Time is starting to roll forward. And we get that phrase, and turned out. She was in the field of Boaz. She didn't realize, but this is significant in the whole story. And so here we get this picture of gleaning. Now just get your heads a little around gleaning on the screen. There's just a few key points we need to understand about gleaning in those days. Because gleaning was framed by God's story. God is the true landowner. They are the stewards. And by showing mercy to the poor, they are imitating God's mercy to Israel when they were in Egypt. So this gleaning process is a welfare process of providing for the poor, but it also tells the story of God's provision, of how he once provided for them in their time of need. But just think about it with the case of Ruth being a Moabite. It's a bit like a Kiwi being in Australia and going on the dole. Australians look down on Kiwis who do that because it's ripping off their welfare system, the wealth their country has created, and they've got another home back across the ditch. And so for her to go gleaning, we just need to realise the enormity of what that involved. And so we saw through the story how she was continually upgraded in what she could take from the land through the love of this man Boaz. And she comes back home, and in chapter 2, verse 19, which is on the screen, we have this wonderful scene where Ruth and Naomi come together at the end of the day. And where it says, The name of the man I worked with today is Boaz, said Ruth. And Naomi says, The Lord bless him. This is the first positive statement from Naomi in the story. He has not stopped showing his kindness to the living and the dead. Who is the he here? Some people say it's God. Some people say it's Boaz. You can read it both ways. But in the context of the story, he, I think, can easily 
be portrayed as God in this story. He has not stopped providing kindness to the living and the dead. In a sense, the dead would love to have been still alive to actually rescue and protect these women who are vulnerable in their society. But this one who is the God of the living and the dead, he is now starting to show a way through this man Boaz of provision for these women. But the key word in this, this sentence, this verse on the screen, is the word kindness. And we're just going to play with that word just for a moment, which comes from a Hebrew word called hesed, which means faithfulness. It's a very rich meaning of love. And on the screen, there's a couple of statements that will help us unpack what this word hesed, translated as kindness or translated as faithfulness in our English language, means. It simply means someone cares and has really made it their business to look out for you. Hesed love is best understood or portrayed when two parties involved sit side by side, where one has a desperate need and the other has the power and the resources to make a difference without obligation. We don't hear any obligation here from Boaz to, to Ruth. This kindness... He had the power. He has the resources. She is desperate. And so in the context of the story here, this is not the first time that this sort of behavior has taken place. We go back into chapter 1 and what Laura was working with us last week when we see Naomi saying to her two daughter-in-laws, don't come. You are free from the obligation of being my daughter-in-law. You don't have to come with me to care for me. Stay in Moab. You'd be better off only Naomi could set them free to do that. Oprah chose. I don't condemn Oprah for that. A very sensible, pragmatic decision. She could start again there, find a man, be looked after and get through society in a place where she is included. But also we see this hesed love, not only in Boaz, as we've seen today in this chapter, but in Ruth for Naomi. Because Ruth had seen something in Naomi. She had seen something of the story. She had heard about, obviously, the God that shaped these people. And this God, she could see beyond Naomi's circumstances. That's what she wanted to be part of. But she had the power. She was the one who could actually help Naomi in her desperate need. And she shows kindness towards Naomi. She had something Naomi didn't have. And so this word kindness, this hesed love, which is in the story, but is also in the macro story. And you've got to be kind to Naomi here because in her culture, her understanding of the God whom she worshipped and who led her people was a God of tremendous hesed love. And as we read in in, in Exodus, it speaks of God as abounding in love and faithfulness. And also in Deuteronomy, it talks about how God is a faithful God, keeping his covenant of love for a thousand generations. Naomi had this picture in her mind of the God whom she worshipped, whom she lived for. But she had a distorted picture. She knew of the covenant which shaped the relationship of the people between God and the nation of Israel. But she'd forgotten that in that covenantal love, they were a rebellious nation. At that time, nobody in Israel knew of God anymore. They'd lost their story. They're all doing what was right in their own eyes. 
But she still had this expectation that she shouldn't be in this situation because she is part of God's family. And I think what's really interesting with regard to this whole context of Ruth with Naomi and God's love, it's a bit like us. We'd really like to think if we were good, God would be good. If we obeyed and we're faithful, God would be as well. But it's not the way it actually works out. Our scriptures are full of stories where faithful people, stuff has gone wrong. Our culture, our church is full of stories where faithful people have experienced pain, injustice and hardship. So I think Ruth shows us something about love. That pain and love in our lives as God's people sit side by side. But the difficulty for us as humans, we have this sense of entitlement to something better. I don't deserve this, or my friend doesn't deserve this. Why is this happening? This is unjust. And I think this is totally normal, totally human, because God, who is our creator, whom we are an image bearer of, he has the same ache. He doesn't want us in that situation. He wants to see us free. But we can only break that sense of entitlement if we realize that will one day fully come. One day the entitlement of love and justice and fairness will fully come when the kingdom finally comes. And the brokenness of this world is restored when Jesus comes and lives and dwells among us. And evil is banished. Satan is totally destroyed. But as we roll forward and we look at Christ, in his life, he had pain and suffering. He had a God-forsaken time in his life. The wilderness, he was alone and broken. On the cross, he says, my God, why have you forsaken me? Just like Ruth when she was in Moab and coming back home. She felt forsaken. The Apostle Paul, he talks about that he endured trouble that was uh, far beyond his ability to endure. God had put too much upon him beyond his ability to endure. This is normative of being a member of God's faith community. But the difference is in this story here, in the story of pain and suffering... Between Ruth and Naomi, Ruth could see through Naomi into a bigger story. A story that would mean she would leave a culture of safety and security to come to a culture of exclusion and insecurity so she could experience this love of God. So as we look at all this, and we look at pain and we look at love, in tension with each other, one does not eliminate the other. But Hesiod love brings clarity to the pain, brings hope amidst the pain. And the sad thing is we depend as humans on each other to experience Hesiod love. And Hesiod love is something we as humans, we cannot give to God, but God can give to us. And that's what the story of the cross is. It shows the story of Hesiod love, of our weakness, God's power, broken on the cross. And the reality is that we are all empty. We are all broken. 
But at times in our lives, we can go through seasons where we can cover it up with the success of career, of job, of health, of fitness, of beauty, and all those kinds of things. We look as though we've got it all together. But really underneath it all, there's emptiness. And we try and fill that emptiness with a number of things. And as Christian people, when the fat hits the fan, we need to think, am I going to be like Elimelech and head off into a despised territory alcohol, sport, indulge myself in things which I know aren't going to solve the problem long term. It may just help solve the pain for the moment. Or am I going to frame myself in the context of God's love, God's people, God's story, and seek to work it through and listen to this pain as echoes, as aches for what I am looking forward to when all will be restored, when heaven and earth become one again, Creation is restored and I live in harmony with God's creation, with my maker, with my fellow man and woman. See these times as aches for another reality. And let's turn them into steps of faith, not steps of rebellion or resentment. Because out of these experiences, we're telling the story of Ruth today. It's thousands of years old, but it connects with us because context is different, but the need is still the same. And so as we take communion this morning, and we think of that passage in Romans chapter 5 where Paul says, you see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Hesed love, one with the power and the resources, one desperate and in need of being set free. We see at the cross, which is over here, the two come together. And so as you take communion this morning, consider who in your network, in your community, needs to experience the hesed love of God. Who do I actually have the power to actually bless through my circumstances and express that loving embrace that Naomi felt from Ruth on that road back to Israel, back to Bethlehem, that embrace that was really an embrace from God. We are people, we are the agents of God's love. But also as you take communion this morning, think of the one who's shown the ultimate kindness in all his power to release us from this brokenness in anticipation of a new reality yet to come. Let us pray before we take communion. Jesus, we just thank you for your humanity, that you lived among us, you learnt obedience through the things that you suffered. You cried and ached in that garden where you said, Father, not my will, but thine be done. On the cross you said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus We thank you for identifying with us. Thank you for feeling our hurt and our emptiness. But at the same time, Jesus, we just thank you for bringing God's love, incarnating it to us in such a tangible way and dying and rising to break the power of sin, the power of death, the power of Satan, all the evil powers that bind this world. We thank you that we are free from those stories and we can live in anticipation of a kingdom restored and fullness of life and being human.
Until that day, Jesus, we take this cup, we take this bread, and we just say thank you for showing us Hesed love. Amen. Connection Point is a joint production between Connection Resources and Shaw Community Christian Church. If you would like a free copy of today's message, please email us or phone us on 0800 90 30 90. To subscribe to our free podcasts or to listen to the latest message, go to connectionresources.org.nz.